ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take you all the way down in New Orleans this time. Competition is Another episode of Hard to Paint with David Grubb. I have a great guest today, and I'm excited to introduce him. He had a seven-year, uh, eight-year, excuse me, uh, career in professional football after he came out of the out of Arkansas State University as an offensive tackle. Played three years there. He's also the president of the Huddle Up Foundation and the treasurer for the Houston chapter of the National Football League Players Association, commissioner and co-founder of the state's development of uh, football league. And he is now in pursuit of the job as the next general manager of the Houston Texans. Ladies and gentlemen, I welcome to the show for the first time, Mr. Garrett Jones. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well, man. I appreciate you for having me on, man. Thank you well, for your time. Today. You know, this is a timely conversation this week. Um, uh, especially with what happened in Washington right. with the signing <clears throat> excuse me, of Jason Wright as the first African-American president, team president in NFL history. Uh, so we are in a very um, historic time, not only with the NFL, but across the nation and how we are readdressing the issues of race. And the NFL is not exempt from uh, that reexamination. You want to be part of that wave, not just because of, and again, I, we, we must explain to people, and I hate that we do, right. you don't want to be the second black team president or the first black GM because you're black. You want to be because you're qualified. And it's almost an insult, and I want to know, to Jason Wright, to think that of the history of the NFL, he's the first one that was qualified for this job. Because people say, well, why does it matter? Why are we looking at race? Shouldn't we always hire the best qualified? To think that there have not been as qualified or more qualified people than Jason Wright to run a team is just a fallacy. Man, it's uh, it's something that um, you know that that's been this way since we uh, started our scene here. Unfortunately, you know, just having to do and, and go above and beyond and work you know six times harder to get half of what somebody else gets, um, and that's just that's how it's been. You know, and, and it's been unfortunate because that's a generational curse that's been handed down. Uh, but for where we are today, um, we are in a, it's a new type of situation. Uh, we're a lot more educated. Um, we have a better understanding of the dynamic of business as well as the game itself, because 80 percent of what's out there on the field is us. You know, and, and we understand that as well. So I think with the shift, um, it's something that is needed, man. It's something that. You know, I, I saw a while back uh, and then, you know, with the with the pandemic, the way it is and how it's really exposing a lot of different things, uh, it, it's helping with that shift as well. Uh, and that's something that we can kind of look at and say that's that's a pretty good situation uh, looking from perspective wise. But, man, it's uh, it's something that, that, that has been bubbling for years and it's just now coming to a head. And I think you're going to see a major shift in all the sports, you know, when it comes down to minorities. Uh, being in, in prominent positions because we, we can get the job done, definitely. You know? Now, what's interesting is, and I hope you like this, is I'd like to flow through kind of your progression um, from college to this point because there are significant current issues on all of these levels that we can talk about. And I think that your path is kind of indicative of that. So right. let's start with college. Okay. You left early. Yeah. But – there were reasons, not just football, that were part of that decision. We're seeing that now kind of play out for these kids having to make decisions regarding COVID-19, regarding whether or not they choose to play or not, and how universities react to those decisions. A lot of players saying they don't feel like they can say no in this situation. The burden on a college athlete to always say yes the expectation of them to always say yes. How big a part of that was the culture then and how much of a part of the culture is it today? It's huge, man, because you learn, you know, early on, you know, with the teamwork aspect, it's all about the team. Nothing is bigger than the team and, and those types of things. And then with, 
with athletes, you know, you are always programmed. You can't make the club in the tub. You know, you have to push above and beyond any kind of injuries that you have in order to get out there and be with your with your with your comrades and whatnot. And um, that's a really big situation, man. Uh, and, and it's you know, I, I liken it as a Jedi mind trick. You know, a lot of times when it comes down to it, you know, okay, don't put don't put yourself above the team. The team is here, and we want to play and those types of things, but. Right now, uh, life or death is really bigger than the team. You know, family is, is always going to be there. And those are the things that these young, young men and young women have to look at. They really have to be conscious of, of the decisions that they make because this could be some long-term, you know, ramifications from it. We just and we saw a player know. today. We right. just saw a player today who had to leave because of heart-related issues Absolutely. due to COVID-19. Absolutely. And it's, it's a hard deal, man. That's a, that's a big-time decision, especially for, you know, I'll call them these kids, man. They're, they're 18, 19. You know, you, you haven't experienced life yet, but I was in a position where I had to make a decision, you know, to walk away. You know, I had done what I needed to do in order to be seen, but at the end of the day, you know, family came before everything else and then my mental health, you know, be able to kind of step away from things and get that 40,000 foot, you know, uh, view of everything. That helped me. That helped ground me and, and, and keep me in the right frame of mind because if I would have stayed, you know, who knows what would have happened with me. I probably would have been drafted, but I probably wouldn't be in this position in order to teach from these testimonies and things that I've gone through. So uh, I feel for the youngsters right now because they want to play. You know, they put in the work to play, uh, but they got to be safe, you know? Yeah, that the contradiction um, of the mission of the university and the mission of the athletic department. Right. And we're seeing that also come to a head at this point. Um, and we can even see it play out not only with these situations here, but also in the recent headlines with Darius Geis um, and what hap- may have happened with him at LSU. Are, do you think that this also forces universities to reckon with that idea? We've seen a few schools. We know the Ivy League. We know Vanderbilt in the SEC. We know Stanford. Their athletic departments are part of their student programs and are not treated as separate institutions. But in our po- most of our power schools, most schools in general, Athletic departments have so much independent sway. It seems that students are also challenging that uh, dynamic as well. Yeah, it's a two. It's a two-headed monster. Um, you, I mean, I would even go a, a step above and say it's a three-headed monster that they're dealing with. You know, because you're dealing with the university, the athletic department, and then you're dealing with the fans uh, and, and the revenue that you drive for the city itself that you're in. So when it comes down to this, these youngsters have a lot of power. And unfortunately, they don't have the representation to teach them about their power, number one. Number two, um, they have never been put in a position because all they've ever thought was, you know, okay, in order to go to the NFL or to get school paid for, I got to play this sport. And and a lot of times that can be used against, you know, the the, the athletes. And it does, you know, and and that's, and that's, like I say, I think this COVID situation has really exposed and got down to the bare bones of what these institutions are about and, and what needs to change. And for the students to figure out their power and say, man, listen, you know, we as athletes, we are the show. I mean, we're the opening act, the headliner and the after part. You know, when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it. um, So we have to have a say, especially when our lives are in danger. However, because we are athletes, you know, we we tend to think we're supermen and women. And we can play through anything and those types of things. and, and, And your quality of life will diminish quickly. And that's the things that they really got to think about. So they have to have somebody in their corner that is logical. And it's not all about based about, you know, emotional decisions, especially right now, because this is uh, something serious, man. And, and, and these NCAA, they have to address it. Uh, just like the NFL, the NBA, MLB, everybody has to really sit down and assess what the goal is and what the bottom line is, because it's always been about the money. But now you have these athletes that are, are starting to figure out, man, you know, we are it. We're the engine. So you got to take care of us. And, and that's where it is, man. Do you see unionization as a possibility? We had the, the, the NRLB, NLRB ruling um, about a decade ago with Northwestern, where they supported what Northwestern was doing, but said that they could not implement it nationally. And a lot of legal scholars disagreed with the NLRB on that. Um, I think that if there were a change of administration this fall, that there may be a, a courts that are more willing to reconsider that issue once again. Yeah, I, I believe it'll, it'll go toward that way. Uh, it's going to have to. 
you think about, and this is something I explained to my, my 13-year-old son, you know, we were talking about being a professional athlete and, and, and being an amateur. I said, well, son, you know, um, when you guys go play your games, um, do they have buses for you guys? He was like, yes, sir. I said, well, do they have shoulder pads and, and, and different things for you guys? He said, yes, sir. I said, well, I said, they have a budget set aside for you guys. I said, so you got to look at it like this. You are now stepping into the realms of professional football. Anytime you're bringing revenue and they're selling tickets and you got money coming into that athletic program, that's professional ball. You know, you're not getting paid, but you are paving the way for revenue to come into your school. I said, so you got to understand what's happening and how that happens. Uh, and I believe that they will go that way as far as union, unionization. Uh, at some point, you know, they're going to fight for it. And, and that's, that, that's the right uh, because they have to have some type of representation. Because when I came through, you know, uh, I was on scholarship. But unfortunately, my parents are fortunate for me. My parents, they made uh, enough money to where I couldn't do Pell Grants. I couldn't do anything. And then I couldn't work. So it was some, it was some summers, man. I was hungry. And I had to figure out different ways to, to bring in revenue for myself. And a lot of people don't get that because, oh, you're getting this free education. And that's not free. I'm putting my life on the line for this education. Concussions and all. And people Absolutely. have to understand that. And, and, and one of the big issues is the long-term health care of right. college athletes because, we, first of all, we know the overwhelming majority are never going to play professional sports, but will still, many of them suffer debilitating injuries that, that hamper their quality of life moving forward. Right. That's, that's, the, that's the nature of that beast. And it's unfortunate because every year you'll have a new crop. Uh, and everybody's trying to get to the NFL when less than 1% of all athletes across the world will make it. You know, there's around 16,000 plus athletes that are draft eligible and only 256 of those guys are going to get the call, you know, come draft day. And all those all these spots are taken. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 I mean, those numbers are staggering, but the athletes that come through and they entertain millions of people and they bring millions of dollars into these organizations, into these schools, uh, something has to be done. It's just like the NFL. You know, when, when you're done, you get five years of health care, and that's it. Good luck to you. And, uh, by, and within, within your fifth year, you're not really feeling the effects and the ramifications of not playing anymore or having played, and you don't really get into that until your 40s and your 50s, and then you start deteriorating pretty quick. Because I have you teammates, man, that I, I, don't, I don't even – they don't even really recognize me anymore, man. And it's sad. It's a hard deal, man. And people don't understand how staggering the long-term costs start to be because if you do need to replace a knee, a hip, or you do suffer CTE, and you not only have those costs, but you are the, the cost to your family because those, those things extend beyond the player individually. And I, when people talk about, well, the players have the right to make the individual decision, Right. At, again, at 18, 19, 21, you don't know you're going to have a spouse and children who could be impacted by that decision later on down the road. Man, I'm, I'm telling you, and that's, and that's, that's the deal with it. Uh, it's about educating. It's about exposing um, and, and, then, and then figuring out how to get that movement in the right direction. Uh, because you got to take care of us. You got to take care of the athletes. Uh, their families are going uh, to suffer from it. I mean, you think about the mental aspect of it, uh, just to mental health. I mean, it's, it's things that I have to deal with, you know, it's days and people ask me, why do I push so hard? I do this because this is the only way I'm going to be able to keep my mind where it is and keep it sharp. Because the moment I slow down six months from now, if I'm not doing anything to stay sharp, it's night and day. And like I say, I have teammates that are my age that have passed away and I have teammates that are, that are my age that they're not doing very well mentally. And, and I'm 41. And that's the most disheartening thing about it. When you go do your brain and body assessments, um, you get a chance to get a baseline of where you are and then you get to see, you know, just how fast and how quickly you're deteriorating as opposed to somebody who just worked a desk job or, or those things. And man, it's scary. It's scary. But, uh, you know, we we put our lives on the line to entertain millions and make millions. And, and, and a lot of times we, we need somebody looking out for us. And that's, you know, that's where the unionization comes into play. Yeah, I think people, to, and to my thought is, it's not about because you made the money itself. It's the nature and what it takes to do this. Oh, yeah. And if, you, if these owners are willing to, to allow this and, and use this as a way for to make revenue, it seems to me the only way you can sustain the game is ultimately taking care of those who have played it instead of abandoning them. Because this is why you get the mindset more and more of former players saying, I would never let my kid play the game. 
man. I, and I and I was there. Um, but you look at what the game teaches. It teaches you so many. It teaches you about life, period, right? It teaches you about teamwork, how to work with people. Uh, but for myself and my children, I get a chance to, to help them navigate those pitfalls um, to where they are set up for life, you know. And, and I will never push the game on them. Like my oldest son, you know, he started when he was five. And I was like, yeah, okay. But what I told him was, you know, you want to do this. You want to play the game. I said, but you don't have to live up to my legs. I said, whatever you want to do, I'm, I'm going to support you 120% because my first love was music and art. You know, my football just, I, I, I was blessed to be able to do it, but my brothers were the ones that were supposed to be the MLB and basketball stars and, and football stars, but, you know, they chose the street route, uh, which a lot of times that's what happens. But with, with, my, with my children, you know, I don't push them. Uh, but I, I do educate them on everything that goes on so they can make their decisions and figure out what they want to do uh, with their lives and those types of things. But we just don't have enough of that because yes. when you're when you're coming from where we come from, we've never been exposed to anything but getting out of your neighborhood by playing sports or, or picking up a microphone and singing and rap. And that ambition right. of knowing that that willingness to do what it takes to get out can be exploited because oh, yeah. then I can overuse you. I can overextend you because you're because I can say so. I'm the coach. Right. You, right. I, there may you, and we both know that there is a limited benefit at some point for any practice of anything. You can over. You can over. But it's about this mentality that still exists. Of this is how you get people in line and create this mentality of fitting in. And and the coach is an absolute figurehead. Right. And that's that's ultimately what it's all about and what it's been about. Um, and, and you hear about, you know, a lot of different athletes and a lot of different coaches not get, getting along. I mean, that's because a lot of these athletes are more outspoken. They understand the dynamic of what's going on. And when when that happens, if you're not a transformational leadership, a leader, uh, you, you lose power. So at that point, that's when you start shipping people out and, and all those different things, man. And it's it, it hurts the, the, the culture. It hurts the dynamic of the team especially if they have chemistry. Uh, but it's just one of those things. I, I've, I've had a million and one coaches. You know, I have coaches that it was my way or the highway. I've had coaches that were really teachers and mentors, which I really got a lot from them. So I was able to soak up a lot and understand how to, how to really tap into, you know, what these younger players need today, as well as the current and then the former guys. And that's why I've been so successful when it came down to just really connecting with people because I want to make sure that everybody gets what they need in order to go to their next level. And you don't have a lot of that right now, man, with the old regime. So when you go into the, your professional career, what are the first lessons you learned about the transition from playing for free and being considered an amateur right. to becoming a professional? What is the first lesson you learned business-wise and what's the first lesson you learned as an athlete? As an athlete and business, I'll say that because once you they, they combine, right? Um, I signed a, a high priority free agent deal uh, right after the draft um, with Jacksonville Jaguars. They had uh, signed, I think, or they drafted two offensive linemen, which is, that was a position I played. I was able to work my way up to the second team um, just off the street, mm -hmm. right? So what I found out was as soon as they signed those guys, they cut me and I was out of there. So I started to learn that it's politics over playing time. You know, if they, if they sign a guy and they pay him X amount of dollars and they sign you and they pay you X amount of dollars, if he got more, they're going to have to be able to justify not playing him. And a lot of times these owners and these GMs, they want to be right, especially when they're spending their money. So it, it doesn't matter if you're better than another individual. If, if they've invested more money, on, on that one individual, he's going to play, no matter how bad he is. It just is what it is. And that's one of the things that I had to learn. You know, and that, that happened in my career early, and then it happened here with the Texans. Um, you know, they pretty much picked up my situation with Kansas City. When Kansas City released me, um, the Texans brought me in, gave me that same contract, but they had brought a, brought a, a number of athletes in and paid them a, a lot more. So no matter how good I was, I was waiting in the wings. So I said, hey, you know, I had to learn how to get off the field and win off the field. That's when I started doing all my philanthropic things. Uh, really got out in the city of Houston, did my internship down at City Hall. So it's 
in order to change the game, you got to play it. Uh, but that was one of my biggest uh, uh, lessons that I learned. It's not like high school, not like junior high. The best man plays. That's not the situation. Money's involved now. So when did you make get that realization that I need to plan for my post-career? That no matter how long I'm playing in this league, right now is when I need to be thinking about my next steps. How for, me, how- for me, it was a little different because I've always been an entrepreneur. You know, I started my graphics design company in the ninth grade. I was always doing something, right? Uh, so the way I got to the league, I had to chase scouts across the country. You know, eventually they began working me out. Um, in mud, rain, two, three in the morning. I mean, anything you can think of. But I was thinking about retirement before I got there. I realized that it's it's a short, it's the best temporary job you'll ever have. However, when you get into that environment, it, you you tend to kind of wane away a little bit because you start to see the different things, the cars, the parties, the all these different things. But I was thinking about retirement and how I could utilize football professionally as a platform to do bigger and better things. But I've had teammates of mine, man, come to me and say, man, gee, I, I don't, I don't think I can do anything else. And, and we're dead serious. And I was like, wow. Okay. Okay. I get it. And I've seen that. And they're still the same way to this day. Uh, and a lot of guys are trying to, you know, really figure it out, but they were blessed to have big contracts and they, you know, kind of figured out, look, I'm blowing this money and nothing's coming in. Uh, so I got to make a change. And for me, I was always on the bottom of the totem pole, man. I was always scrapping. So whatever I got, I figured out, okay, how can I take this and now manifest this into something else? So I was always thinking, man, I had to. We've been told that the locker room is a place where money is not talked about, that players don't talk about their state, you know, finances. They don't talk about investments. They don't talk about those things. Did you notice that in in your locker room environments? And and how, as a player – do you think you need to engage player to player and what is, and, and are there any support factors in the league outside of when you first come in to deal with financial planning, to deal with, you know, all those types of, what kind of assets are there to, available to players in a real way? Well, for, for me, what I've seen in the different locker rooms, you, you got to understand I've been on eight different teams. So I've had a chance to be in some locker rooms, right? Um, you would see, you know, Funny story, I won't say it's funny, but, you know, when you have your rookies coming in, your veterans kind of play games with them, you know, of course, you know, that, that type of situation. Um, different checks that guys would get that they may not have cash, they might drop them on the floor and say, hey, rook, get that fuck, check that out. You know what I'm saying? Like showing you what you can be making, right, as opposed to your little $214 a week or whatever that you're making during the preseason and, 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 and uh, offseason training and whatnot. Because you don't really – you don't get paid until the season starts. So right. a lot of people don't know that. Um, but as far as, you know, just advice, guys would talk about different things. I think, I think I've been around a lot of guys who really understood, uh, you know, what was going on and how this thing lasts. I, I really got some really good advice um, when I was with the Texans from one of my linemen uh, uh, teammates, Zach Weger. Um, you know, the NFL was coming in, you know, and, and presenting their 401K situation. And – um, I think at that time they would match and double whatever you would put in. So you could put in like 14 grand and they have double that and triple that. And, and it really looked good, right? Like, okay, I'm going to dump as much as I can in each and every year and blah, 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 so and so and so and so. But what Zach told me, he said, man, listen, he said, if something goes wrong uh, because of the collective bargaining agreement, you cannot touch your money until you're 45 years old. I was like, what? I said, so if I put my money in and say, for instance, I get in a pinch, Something right. happens, uh, an emergency, that money's locked. That money, I, I can't touch my money. So a lot of guys don't realize that, you know, and, and it looks really good to you, but the fact that it has to be locked in per collective bargaining agreement really traps a lot of guys. And that's, and, that's yeah. ex- exploitation on its own because they're accruing interest on the money that you put in and they put a definitive time limit for it. And so that they can calculate at least some knowledge of what revenue they're generating from your retirement income, that- It's a dirty game, man. It's a dirty game, right? That's dipping your hands in both pockets. Right, you see what I'm saying? So you have, and that's one of the things that I saw when I was playing, I, I didn't get any of the ticket sale money. I didn't get any of the merchandise, any of the parking, any of the, uh, uh, of the of the of the concessions, I didn't get any of that, but I got a check, right? And when I saw the owners 
able to come down into the locker rooms with a smile on their face and paying guys. And I'm looking at my check and I'm seeing guys down there that they got some pretty good numbers, right? And you're doing it with a smile on your face. I, I figured out really quickly that we're bringing and we're, we're making you a lot more than you're paying us. So it's just like in anything in life, man, you, your boss will never pay you enough to live next door to you. You know, and that's one of the things that I really learned. Like I'm getting paid well, but I wasn't getting paid what I was worth. And I said, if I ever had an opportunity to set up a platform, I'm going to have a league where you can make as much money as you want, but it's, it's predicated on what you do, you know, and it, and it evens the playing field. And we give you as many different options to take care of your families for life. Um, and that's what I wasn't seeing in the NFL. I wasn't seeing it in the CFL. I wasn't seeing it in the IFL or any other FL that's out there. And that's why I, I was hell-bent on starting my own development league to where we can not only teach these athletes, but their families. And then the fans can get in on the profit sharing and the money generating as well. So, Yes. The, you know, when I think it's a strategy that, is the, that the NFL has used and, and professional leagues use all the time to publish player salaries, which you don't do in other industries, but you publish the player salaries and then you don't show the revenues. You don't open the books. So you, I, as, as a fan or an observer, I have no idea how much you are making relative to league revenues. So in the abstract, and yes, Pat Mahomes signing for $40 million in the abstract, in reality, is a lot of money. Oh. But like you said, if the Chiefs can pay him $40 million in an individual season and not sweat writing that check. Right. They got a lot more money than they're They talking. got a lot more money, a lot more money. You think about the different revenue streams of a league. A lot of people will look at your, you know, your, your, your TV deal. A lot of people will look at, you know, the revenue from social media, you know, anything that you're doing online, streaming, those types of things. You look at your ticket sales, you look at your park and all of the, all of the, those ancillary situations. Um, and, and there's a lot of money that's being generated, right? Um, when you have an organization and you have these athletes, these athletes now are a, a direct reflection of your actual league or your team and their own social media aspects are now bleeding into what you're making as well. And those guys may not be able to monetize that the way that they want to, but your team is monetizing that. So, it's a it's 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 a it's an interesting game to say the least. The more I started to learn about it, I had the opportunity to just you know have on the job training when I was playing with different teams. Man, I've had some of the best GMs and I've had some of the worst GMs, uh, and, and I learned from all of them. You know, and I, I I made it a point to really seek these guys out and talk to them and just ask them questions and just interview them. And they were looking at me like, man, you're supposed to be focusing on X's and O's. I said, well, I can't do this for It's kind of like. The story, uh, and I, I tell a lot of people about my situation with Bob McNair. You know, we had a very good understanding. You know, um, we might have differed on politics, or we might have differed on this and that. But when it came down to business, he understood what I was doing, and I understood what he was doing. So it would it would be situations where you know they would have galas and things throughout the city, and I would be showing up. I'm out there networking. I'm talking to people, but this would be right after practice. And he, you know, he'd see me every once in a while, and we'll you know nod and wave and. One time uh, he saw me at a gala. I forget what it was, was what it was about. I think it was some type of fundraiser for uh, a nonprofit or something like that uh, in the city uh, with the mayor at the time. And he saw me and he waved me over. So I went over there and I talked to him and he said, let me ask you a question. He said, how is it that I can see you on the field uh, performing, you know, at the level that you perform in order to be a part of this team and you're doing it so well, but how is it that after we're done, I'm seeing you here? at all these different events. And, and I said, well, with all due respect, Mr. McNair, um, I'm doing the same thing you're doing. I said, uh, you have children, don't you? He said, yeah. I said, I do too. I said, so I'm trying to make sure that they're going to eat well, you know, when I'm no longer here. And he said, okay, I get it, I get it. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, you won't be able to play football forever, but um, you'll always have a job here working for the Texans. And I said, okay. I said, all right, that's, that's a wonderful offer there, Mr. McNair. I said, but I tell you what, I said, with all due respect again, Mr. McNair, since you understand what I'm about, I said, the next time we'll see each other, it'll be a 50-50 partnership on some level. And he looked at me and he smiled and he, he toasted and he said, I, I like that. And he just walked off. And I would see him in passing and you, you know the respect was there because he understood that I, I knew exactly what I was wanting to do and how I was going to do it. 
and understanding that the game is just a game. It's a platform. Um, and a lot of athletes don't get that. And that's why we try to mentor as much as possible and just try to instill these in the younger ones, younger, younger athletes. So they understand. It. So it's a man. It's when I learned the game and I learned the business. Um, I tell people all the time, it's a wonderful game, but a terrible business. Man. It it's is. interesting the way he words that in that story is to say, you'll always have a job with the Texans, which means right. he viewed you. And at his best, and it may not be with malicious intent, but he viewed you as an employee. As an employee. Though you were clearly stating, you know, through, I am am here to to make, to do business. Yes, sir. Like, I'm not looking for a job here. That's what you you are clearly (laughs) doing. You're saying, I'm here to do business. I can get a job. You are concerned about getting a job. Right. But you say I'm here to do business, which is right. a bit a much different mentality. But yeah, a lot of owners are not prepared for mm-hmm. players who say, I want to be a partner rather than hand me what you can for what you want me to do. Of course. I mean, that's just that's been business as usual. We've always done it this way. When you can say that we've always done it this way, that's the easiest way for your business not to work anymore. That model loses a lot of his zest because you have to adapt. And, and right now, like I said, there's a, a major shift that is about to come when it comes down to the, 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 the scheme of things with the professional ranks and the different leagues that'll be here and the different athletes. It's, it's a different day, man. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing to watch it unfold, man, because COVID really has uncovered a lot. You know, it's, it's, it's really uncovered a lot, man. You get a chance to see who you can win with, who you can't win with. And once this thing is over, you know, you, you figure out which direction you need to go. So when you transition out of your career and, and it's about a four year period between the end of your playing career, three, three years, I think, three years between the end of playing the foundation of the state's developmental league, the league started in 2012. Oh, well, the 2011, right, right. It's like a year and a half. Okay. So you go into this transition and part of it is like you said, there's revenue sharing There's an opportunity for players to buy shares of the team that they work for. Absolutely. And you have these support mechanisms in place. Talk about the mission of that league and how it's sustained itself up to this point. Well, for the state's developmental football league, man, it's really simple. It's a lot of common sense. Um, the mission is to educate. The mission is to empower. The mission is to create generational wealth you know, with something that God has blessed us with, with the ability to go out and just be spectacular when it comes down to sports and anything else. Um, and, and our mission is to take these athletes and their families and move them from one space where they're not educated on financial literacy, business, entrepreneurship, uh, generational wealth building, insurance, gold and silver, and take them to that space to where now they are high net worth individuals. And now that's when we're talking, you know, teaching them how to create family offices, leaving wills, not bills. Uh, Unfortunately, leagues don't do that. You know, and the leagues I've been a part of, they will do some some reactive things. They will do some things at the beginning, but it always goes back to the X's and the O's and to their bottom line. And and, and I said, man, if I ever had the opportunity, the things that I've learned, we're going to put that in there. So what we did was we we created a business curriculum um, that teaches all of those different things. And during the seasons, when we would play our games, we would play bi-weekly. So one week we focus on the game to build up that uh, portfolio for the athletes. And then the off weeks, we would now get into the business, like the platforms or the trainings, those types of things. We're now we're talking about interviewing. You know, guys go out and run for 260 yards, but you put a microphone and a camera in their face as a train there, right? Mm-hmm. We, we're getting away from that. We're trying to eliminate those, those excuses. So it, 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 how I really explain it to a lot of people, if the NFL would have taken you and said, okay, Gary Jones, before you sign your contract, Here's what we're going to do for you. We're going to teach you financial literacy. We're going to teach your family business. We're going to teach all of you guys about entrepreneurship. We're going to teach you how to brand yourself and also how to leverage our brand. So where now you're leveraging the fact that you had the shield on your back and emblems on your helmet. And what that's going to do is that's going to create revenue streams for you and your family for generations to come. And you, right? But you know. Yeah, right. But Let you me, know. And that's the thing. And then, but check it out. But check it out. But, but, but if they would have done that and said, listen, the fact that we're going to do that, we're going to take 10 to 20% of everything you do in business, revenue-wise, and that's going to come back to our pot. Now, you're still going to be able to take care of your families. Healthcare won't be a problem. Generational wealth will be created. You'll be able to take care of your families from the grave, right? 
if they would have taken that, that platform and said, look, we're going to start doing this, there's 27, 28,000 of me running around. If they would have done that, the NFL could potentially make trillions of dollars a year without even taking a snap. That's barring yeah. TV deals, that's barring all that. But that's ultimately what we put together in the SDFL. And you know what the danger of that, though, is it upsets the status quo and it creates if you are creating players with generational wealth, then you are creating independence financially. And then you are potentially creating competition. Absolutely. Well, the thing you got to think about is once you do that, any kind of business, it doesn't matter if it's sports, you can have a restaurant. Um, If you have employees, right? And you make your money by people coming through those doors and all of a sudden it's a pandemic. Now nobody's coming through the doors. So you have to lay people off. You got to close your doors. But if you teach your employees and put them in positions to where they're making money and you're able to take bits and pieces of what they do, you're making money with them on the clock and with them off the clock. And for us, if you put it in in the context of the NFL, when guys retire, NFL is no longer making money with them, and we're no longer making anything from the NFL. But if you did that, even when they're done, you still have money's coming back to the league, regardless of who's doing what or whatever the situation is, because now they've leveraged that. And and that's why I say the NFL can make so much more money, so it could affect their bottom line. But now the impoverished and, and underserved communities that we come from, we can start building those up. You know what I'm saying? And then you still are eating from it. So – it, it balances out, you know, when you really sit down and look at it. But oh, yes. I get what you're saying. I'm, yeah, I'm not disagreeing with your idea. Right, right. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But that's big. We know the power <laughs> structure and how, and how these things work and the dynamics of it. And it's just, that's the shame of it is yeah. that they, they prefer it to this okay. manner because also the leagues are extremely risk averse. Mm-hmm. And the thought of throwing that money down a hole. You know what I'm saying? Of these guys who are want guaranteed income. That's what every negotiation from owners is about guaranteeing their income while making yours more questionable. Right, right. You know, they don't want to guarantee more money for the players, right, but they want to guarantee right. constantly more money for the owners, which I I don't, you know, that's, that's a, not the nature man, of entrepreneurism that, to me. Man, that's the nature of the beast. And that's why that's why I always say it's always we've done business this way. This is how we've always done it. And, and it's time to start really thinking about different ways because with the COVID, with the COVID situation going on right now, these teams are scrambling. They haven't even thought about this stuff. And this is stuff that I've been dealing with since 2011 when we first started. We said, how can we still be profitable if we have one or one million in the stands? And we figured it out. You have to take care of the players and their families, put them in a position to win, and now you got those monies coming in. And then when it when everything turns over and now everything's back to normal or new normal and we can function now you get back to those things but it keeps you going as a business you think about the cfl they're not going to have a season this year in canada and the cfl is older than the nfl Mm -hmm. so there's so much uncertainty when all they had to do is just you know listen when we tried to tell them like listen this is what it's about so um i'm looking forward to the 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 next set of meetings that i'll be having uh here pretty soon you know with some of these upper 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 management uh, situations in Canada. We're doing some stuff and definitely with my GM push, man, I really want to, you know, kind of put some things out there and see where everybody's head is at this point because it's, it's time to really start looking at different angles. Yeah, there's a great opportunity right now with what is going on with the NCAA, with what is going on in development and, and the issue of these players who are concerned about it, that if there are viable options to me at some point of taking players out of the university structure of football mm-hmm. while still educating them during those times. Like if you're playing this, if, if and your league is in the summer, right? Oh, no, it's, no, it's, no, no, it's fall. Same fall, time in the NFL. Yeah, same time. I'm sorry. Right. But there, I mean, even with that, I think in the future going forward, I, I believe that the power five is going to splinter off at some right. point. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have this entire network of players at universities that are now completely underfunded after the, the aftermath of, of COVID-19. And there are going to be reductions in, in football uh, programs. And those players are going to be looking for development and education. And I think that there are ways with distance learning now right. to have players on site to be able to teach them. Right. Because we also know, and, and I'll get your feedback on this, 
the vast majority of college football programs are not teaching the necessary skills to become an NFL player. They're teaching you the skills to succeed in winning on that Saturday so that coach can keep their job. That's it. You, you hit it. Uh, nothing else really to be said. You hit it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it. that's the promise that they make. It's, it's the guys with the, the incredible physical skill, the guys who were on the radar, the five stars in high school, they mm. remain on the radar unless they bomb in college. Right. But it's right. those guys who are make up the four, fifth, sixth, seventh round picks who had mm. to play for four years and build up their notoriety. But they are missing that thing that could not be taught right. because of the budget or the game plan that their school runs, the, the offensive sets that they ran that you're not yep. going to see on the next level, the techniques that you're not going to use on the next level. And it makes it harder for those, those particular players right. to ever get a legitimate opportunity because their talent isn't being utilized in the right way. No, I, I agree with you completely, and that's exactly one of one of the reasons why we we started the States Developmental Football League, in order to be an extension of these colleges. When these guys run out of their eligibility, we still are able to work with those schools to now bring those guys in, and these guys are going to have a three-year span of actually physically playing with us because every year is compounding, compounding, compounding. So there will always be more players than leagues. That's just it. Doesn't matter how many leagues you have. It's always going to be that. So what we wanted to do is not only be a, a, a developmental situation for the players, but for the coaches as well. So you think about the NFLPA. All right, you got all these athletes who are former players. All these guys want to be scouts. They want to be coaches. They want to be GMs. They want to be this. They want to be that. But they don't get the opportunity. Right? The NFL can't house all the players, and it can't house all of the coaches and scouts. So they need a feeder system. And that's exactly why we designed the SDFL the way we did so now I can tap into my PA uh, uh, contacts. I can tap into all these different colleges who, who may have had programs or who are having problems, and they have all these athletes, and these guys aren't going. You think about all these HBCUs. How many of those guys are going to the NFL? Yeah. So it's, it's one of those things where we get them and we, and we get the opportunity to continue to develop them, and we'll put them in a position to be seen by the NFL. But if that does not work, we've changed their mindset from wanting to play for a team to now wanting to own a team. And that's what this thing is all about, teaching them how to put their monies together. And now they go buy a team or they start a league or, or they do this and they do that. And that's really what it's all about. It's like you want to set them on fire and, and then be able to do what they do. And then you have percentages come back from everything that they have going on. Uh, that way, it's always money's coming back. But uh, that's that's a lot of the reason why we started the SDFL, because a lot of these guys don't get that opportunity. I mean, I had to I had to scratch and paw for everything I got. And we made it happen, but it's time for something to be set up that's going to benefit everybody, all the way from the tip top down to the to the groundskeepers and the fans. And that's that's what we had. So one of the, the transitions, the vehicles for transition from that is having a great agent. And you are also getting into the representation uh, side of things um, and sports management. Right. Talk about the the ability and the access how important it is to be able to get on a university campus and and the impediments there are for agents at you know who are coming into the to the game and then on on the next level convincing athletes in and of themselves to work with and, and this was the first year we had ever seen in league history where you had multiple players represented by black agents taken in the first round of an NFL draft it's there's some again we're seeing some progress how do we sustain that and make players understand that black agents are viable options too absolutely well for myself it's drawing on my experience you know everything i've gone through from contract negotiations with my agent uh and and always being a part of that because he understood that i wanted to know those things i wanted to know how to do it because eventually i wanted to not have to rely on him and that was a conversation that we had so it takes honest honest and uh, transparent conversations from the beginning. Like, listen, I want to put you in the driver's seat. I want you to get to a point where you don't need me anymore because you're not going to make your move if, if I don't show you how to fly. You know, I, I don't want to be a glorified babysitter. And those are some of the conversations that, that I'll have with parents and guardians and whoever else is there. We have to build them up as well 
and teach them and expose to them everything about the business so they understand it. So they're not pulling on that on said athlete while he's trying to keep his job. So it's 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 a real honest and frank conversation that has to be had. Uh, and I think a lot of the the, the minority uh, agencies, I think they're having those conversations with these athletes uh, and their parents and, and being real and upfront with them and able to connect with them. You know, there's some type of connection there because you don't necessarily want to come out and go to a firm where they got 70 guys and you're just a number. Um, it, I think it's a lot more from a family-oriented aspect because a lot of these youngsters don't come from families uh, or a dynamic that's been split up. And you want to show them, man, this is bigger than just the game of football. And that's the conversation that I've had, you know, with a few a, a few people that I know, letting them know, listen, man, you got to begin with the end in mind. I mean, X's and O's are cool, but that's quick. We got to figure out the rest of this so that way you can walk straight, walk straight into this thing and, and be successful at it. And no matter what happens, you know, come hook or crook, you still can take care of your family because that's the ultimate goal. Or was the goal for you just to be on TV, you know, to get the blue check and, you know, and these things in social media? Is that your game game? Because if that's the case, you probably want to go to somebody else. And I'll turn that guy away in a minute. But getting on the campus itself, we know that's about mm -hmm. relationships with head coaches. We know it's a lot about relationships with athletic directors. Right, right, so right. just even getting the first conversation, because we know those, those same agents are waiting outside of the practice field, that right. walk from the practice field to the locker room. Right. They're there. How do you get inside that wall to even start developing that before the flash of the Mercedes Benz, the flash right. of this is what I'm promising you when likelihood is, dude, you're not a first round pick. You aren't making double digit millions over the course of your career. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what you would have to do is you would have to go through compliance. Um, once you make those inroads, now those are the people that you're going to deal with on the first way. Once you get in with them, then they're going to uh, connect you with the athletic departments and you're going to talk to the people there. You're going to talk to coaches, uh, position coaches, scouts, those types of things. And what's going to happen is once you go in, you know, you're going to build up those relationships with those people. So from a scouting standpoint, you know, for a team or, or for another league, you know, you can be in there watching game film at the times the agents can't be there. And that helps me because, you know, I have my scouting credentials. So I wanted to purposely make sure that I understood and had everything set up that I can actually work from any angle. And with the agency situation, my approach will be simple. Uh, my approach is going to be, you know, I'm able to teach from that testimony. I'm able to put my story out there and with their families and say, look, here it is. This is it. It can happen, especially with these athletes. It can happen. But here's how you do this, this, this. And if you're not cut from that cloth, now we got to figure out how to take what you do best and make sure that it's going to take care of your family for life. And also with the parents, also with the people that are around them, they got to put in the work too because they got to go to work this, at the same time that that athlete is on the field. They got to be working on business, entrepreneurship, branding. They got to have a machine, a well-oiled machine in place by the time that athlete is ready to tackle business because he's done playing or he's coming to the twilight of his career. And it's all systematic. It's just a game plan that they have to have. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to getting on campus, it's, it's a few a few hurdles, uh, a few calls you have to make and just talking to people and, you know, and being cordial and humble and all those different things. But, you know, it's it's doable. But there again, you got some agents that they're sending their runners. They got guys outside right. walking guys behind them. It, it, it's it's a it's a shifty business, man. And it's But we're going to change that, man. We got to. It's time, man. It's time. Um. So now we move on. You are pursuing the position of general manager with the Houston Texans. Sure. First, we know your relationship with the Texans as a player. You've talked about that part. Uh, you talked about your relationship with Bob McNair. Why, but why this team? Why now? Well, being a, a former player, there is a vested interest that I have in the organization to be a winner. When I signed my contract, it wasn't necessarily just for the money. That was a good portion of it. Don't get me wrong. But I wanted to be a part of a winning organization. And, and that was impressed upon me when I actually came and worked out for the Texans. Uh, when I came back from Canada, after I went up, after I got cut from Jacksonville, I had the opportunity to now be out there on the field in the plastic for all those scouts and working out on the road. And I came home and I worked out for like 14 teams. Um, and eight of those teams wanted to sign me and, and the Texans were one of them. Um, when I went to Kansas City, Willie Rhodes was there. Um, and Willie was like, listen, you know, he grew up 
45 minutes away from me. So Willie hosted me on my uh, uh, recruiting visit to La Tech and everything. So I called Willie up. I said, man, listen, how, how long are you going to Willie said, I'm about to get ready to shut it down. Come on here and just sit behind me. And then, you know, Dick and those guys, they love you, blah, blah, blah. Just come through. So I ended up signing with Kansas City. Got there, did my thing, um, made the team. But what had happened was they said, listen, we got to cut you. We're going to put you on practice squad. We're going to pay you full salary. We're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I told Dick Vermeer that day, I said, man, you cut me, I'll never come back. I said, because I did too much work. And he said, listen, we got to try it. They ended up releasing me. And the next team that wanted me was the Texans. So I already knew the dynamic of that. Mm-hmm. I knew that it was a new organization. I knew that they were trying to find their identity. Uh, and, and I was up for that challenge, right? So when I came here and put my life on the line going out there practicing every day out there in the heat, I have a vested interest because I laid that foundation. And when you have powers that be that are, are in positions that they're tearing that down and there's no really uh, a clear and concise direction, and your fans are now talking about boycotting and everything else you can think of, all I could think about was the Oilers and how we had an organization here and that organization had to leave. And, and I got close to the fans. I've, I've had the opportunity to be a part of, of something special here. And, and that's the reason why I threw my hand up because you have some staples here that are players that can, can be Hall of Fame caliber guys. But it, it all boils down to everybody being on the same page. And I didn't see that. I hadn't seen that for a number of years. And, and that's part of the reason why I did not come back and be a scout with the Houston Texans because I didn't want to typecast myself in that, in that position where I couldn't work with all the athletes. Uh, and when I saw what was going down and then with DeAndre Hopkins being traded and all those different things, I said, man, somebody has to do something. You know, and I talked to a lot of the, the, the legends from the Texans, and they said, man, if anybody's going to be able to do it, it's you. I said, well – I guess it is. And then that's when – so let's get this thing started, man. Let's do what we got to do. So you made this a grassroots movement. Um, and, and I think the success of any franchise is defined by its culture. And right. that, to me, is bigger than um, any one player. It's bigger than a coach. It's bigger than – you know, it's the same way the Pittsburgh Steelers have been able to transition from coach to coach over the years, from player to player over the years, and still you know what the Pittsburgh Steelers represent. You knew during the San Francisco 49ers golden era, you knew what that team embodied, the values that Eddie DeBartolo wanted from George Seifert, from Bill Walsh, from that continuity. Um, the Texans have never had – an extended period of success. Right. They are a relatively young team, but still, when you look at the teams their age, the Jacksonvilles, when right. you or you know, even in Atlanta, a Carolina, the New Orleans Saints, all franchises, the Arizona Cardinals, all franchises that in recent history were bottom feeders in the league, have made Super Bowl appearances at the very least, some with wins, right. and yet the Carolina Panthers, I mean, excuse me, the, the Houston Texans can't string together double-digit win seasons. That's uh, – I, I credit that to leadership and uh, anything, man. You can have the best athletes, uh, the best products, the best everything, but if you don't have a, a dynamic reason for everybody to get behind the movement, you, you'll never be above average. Um, and that's what I've seen for a number of years, um, just looking at everything, the different turnover – turnovers from general managers to different things that have gone on in the organization. And my thing has never been to down, down, down talk my organization by any means. Um, But I just want to add value. And I feel that in the right position with the fans that are behind it, because right now with all of the petitions that are out there, you know, I, I, I jumped out there in front of those bullets and said, Hey man, before you start picketing and boycotting and not spending your money with the organization, I would like to put my name in the hat, you know, as a general manager, and i like you guys to support me. And in doing so, I got all kind of fire and brimstone thrown at me, which is really good because that helps me to be able to get them to understand exactly what's going on and in my resume, everything I've done. And, and I've been able to get in front of all those different petitions, which puts me in, in, in front of 100,000 100, plus signatures. And if you look at the numbers, that equates to around $12.5 million a game that will be coming through the gate with And that's just being a general manager and not playing the game. Um, and those are the things that you have to have. You have to have uh, fans that are behind it. 
You have to have in the fan advisory board where they they feel like they're a part of different things. You have to be able to connect with the players that you have because this new wave of, of players is a lot different than when I came through. And I know it's a lot different than a lot of these older coaches. So it's about a regime that, that will ultimately bring that Super Bowl to town because that has to be the singular focus. And, and, it's un, and it's unacceptable as a leader if I can't get you or if I can't get everybody to buy in. Now you have a, you have a locker room full of mercenaries and you'll never win a Super Bowl like that because they're just here for a check. Same thing with inside the building. They got to understand and know that they bring purpose and, and passion to this thing. And they're just as much as part, a, part of, a part of the Super Bowl as anybody else. Your groundskeepers. Even everybody has to feel like they're a part of the team. And, and right now, I don't see that. I don't see that at all. What I, I'm not going to ask you to give away what your, your strategy would be. That's just not, you know, that's that, that isn't fair to anybody. But, um, you know, honestly, you, you've had success in getting these names behind you. Right. Um, I'm certain you've reached out to people who are able to communicate this interest. Um, you know, what, what do you think it's going to take to be able to get down and sit down in front of folks at this point and, and say, I just want to make my case? Well, being a former player, you know, I, I have a few different doors I can tap on in order to get to the powers that be. But um, so being able to have those conversations, I don't think that'll be a problem. I think for myself, being able to put it in a perspective for them to understand exactly what's being brought to the table and what's needed is what I've really been focusing on. That's why I've been so focused on, you know, all the certifications, all of the classes that I've been taking. Because when COVID hit, I knew that I had to take off running full speed because by the time this is done or by the time they get some kind of grasp on it, I want to be head and shoulders above the rest. Anybody that you bring in, and that means that I have to bring every platform that I have to the table in order to affect that bottom line of the Houston Texans, to take them from number nine on the money list to number one. I have to be able to bring the fans in, in which that's what I've been cultivating, those relationships. I have some of the – I mean, I have some really good friends that are diehard fans, and these folks are like, we got to get you in there. This is what has to happen. Those types of things. So they're behind it. And then from there, being able to bring my league into the play to where now I can present that as a feeder. Because what happens is, and what's going on right now, is these young guys won't get these reps that they need. Preseason's being cut in half. Um, then from there, you're bringing in 90 players. You got to cut that down to 53 men. How do you bring in 90 players, cut it down to 53, and then when the season starts, you keep up with the rest of those guys you cut? You can't do it. So right now, you already have a ready-made feeder system in which now we can put these athletes. And this is something that we can shop straight to the NFL and say, listen, we know that you're bringing these guys in every year. They need to develop. Here's how they develop. We know that you have these coaches and these scouts that need to develop. Here's how they develop. We know that you have all these people that could be general managers, team presidents, all these Here's where they develop, and it's all, the heavy lifting has already been done. I don't think anybody will come into the gate or come into that actual meeting with any, any NFL team, not just the Houston Texans, and be able to bring to the table what I've been able to bring to the table. The fact that I've played in a number of leagues and been able to see that, the fact that I've started my own league and I've been consulting, uh, doing a lot of different things and, and really giving myself the advantage when it came down to, to being logical, to being in a, in a position to – to bring things to the table that will add value and it'll increase that bottom line outside of just, you know, what goes on every day with, the, with ticket sales and so on and so forth. So we're in a good spot, man. It's, uh, it, it's, it's been a, a long road, but I think it's a culmination of everything that I've gone through to be able to bring that experience to the table and, and be able to get in front of everybody in the building and bring that together as a family. I haven't seen that yet. And, and, and I'm looking to do that. Man, I wish you uh, nothing but luck with this. Um, please tell folks how they can support you um, and how they can follow um, your efforts. Um, you're looking at Twitter, uh, LinkedIn. That's at Commissioner GJ that you can search me out. Uh, you can do a Google search or whatever web crawler you use and just put in Garrett Jones football uh, and that'll come up. Um, we, I use the hashtag GJ, the number four GM. And that'll bring up pretty much every post that I've posted over the last five, six months in regards to this initiative, in regards to any of the programs that I'm doing, anything that I'm teaching, uh, all the different things, man. It's, it's out there. Uh, and I'm just asking for people to do that due diligence on me. They get to know me. I promise you, when you do that, 
and you get a chance to drill down and get past the little Wikipedia page and really get to seeing what's going on with me, um, there's a reason why I'm here. Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm just here to, 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 to do what I've been put on this earth to do. And that's my purpose and my passion, uh, to make sure that I, I touch a lot of different people who are going to bring this support to Houston. Or, or if the Houston Texans aren't really receptive to myself, there's 31 other teams. And, and we're going to make it happen. But ultimately, I, w- I would love to be here to bring a, sit- bring a Super Bowl to the city of Houston uh, for these good fans, man, because they need it. They need it bad. We need something to cheer about, you know, and, and that's really what this thing is all about. So that's it, man. I appreciate you, brother, for letting me come on here and ramble a little bit and, and just get my story out and, and being a part of this movement, man. man. No, no. Thank you for your time. I think uh, the topics that we hit on, you know, it's bigger than you. It's bigger than oh, – you know, just the game itself. And I think you gave some just great depth to it that I can't give the insight. You know, this is insight that has to come from people who have lived it and are living it currently because otherwise, yeah, I could sit here and give my opinion all day on what I think kind of changes need to be made in the business and the, and the structure of sports, but I'm just a guy with a microphone. You know, this is, this is your life that it's impacting. And so it's important for me to get as many of these angles as I can. Brother, hey, and it's, it's, it's respected and it's appreciated, man. And it's a part uh, of this new movement that, that has to happen. I mean, it's, there's steps that we're going to take, uh, but ultimately everything that we want to see, we won't see before we check out of here, uh, but we will get this ball moving, man. I promise you that. I don't know where it ends for you, but it's, uh, I'm sure it's going to be where you're supposed to be. Yes, sir. You better believe me. All right. Uh, for Garrett Jones and myself, David Grubb, I just want to thank you all for listening again. You can follow me on Twitter at DM Grubb and at HITP underscore with underscore DG. And don't forget my website, HITP with DG.com. So until the next time, this has been Hard to Paint. We'll talk soon.